Today's episode is sponsored by Game Stormers, a creative tableau building game for three to six players. In Game Stormers, you are an up-and-coming game designer tasked with building a unique game narrative using a storyline, two mechanics, and two item cards. During the course of the game, you can acquire cards, design your own custom cards, and even duel other Game Stormers in the arena where only the best game designers survive. Can you summon a game the world will never forget? Win either by scoring the most victory points or designing the best game narrative. So be sure to check out Game Stormers on Kickstarter right now. And if you're looking for a quality Kickstarter marketing specialist, I recommend the folks over at Next Level Web. They charge flat fees with an easy monthly agreement and they get serious results. Their goal is to get you funded on day one and their rate of success for that is above 90%, regardless if you're a veteran or a first-time creator. As a client myself, I can personally attest to their quality as they have helped me raise tens of thousands of dollars for my own projects. So if your email list looks pitiful, but your game is awesome, head on over to nextlevelweb.com kickstarter and take your marketing to the next level. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going racing. We're talking about race games. What does it look like to design an interesting, a fun, a thematic racing game? And we're talking to Kathleen Mercury, a teacher, a freelance game designer, a person who has been teaching about how to design race games for a while now. I'm really excited to chat about that. Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thanks, Gabe. I am super excited to be here with you. Yeah, so glad to have you on the show. Been wanting to have you on for a while. So glad that it worked out. And yeah. uh, we're talking on two in, from two very different places <laughs> in the world. It's it's kind of crazy. You're in Bucharest, if yeah. I say that correctly. I'm in Honduras. You're doing some cool stuff over there. Yeah. I've been having a lot of fun here. And that's one thing. Hopefully, as people have listened to my show and heard stories from people around the world, mm-hmm. just very different people, very interesting people from different cultures. I'm hoping that they uh, get a little adventure in their lives and they want to reach out and, and branch out and go to some of these places as well. You're telling me. Uh, Bucharest has some of the best internet and best toilet paper in the entire world. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. It's probably not necessarily how they like would want to promote it, but usually when it comes to Bucharest, which is in Romania. And so uh, the, the number one thing that people associate with Romania is Transylvania and as such Dracula. And certainly if you go through the airport, there's all manners of things that you can buy that have like Dracula on them and stuff. They lean into that and it's kind of fun. Um, yeah. But I mean, Romania is a super interesting place. Uh, Bucharest is really interesting. You know, you've got, if people are in their 30s, they remember waiting in bread lines um, or other type of lines for any type of, you know, basic sustenance, um, you know, if they're in their 30s. So it wasn't that long ago. Ceausescu was uh, deposed in 1989. And so you have a lot of that sort of impact and influence of what, the tyranny of communism did to the Romanian people as a whole. They are, they are a Latin people. They speak uh, Romanian is closest to actually Latin out of all of the romance languages. They're very proud of that too. Um, and a lovely people, you know, they, it can be more reserved because again, that's that sort of like post-communist sort of influence, but um, really lovely, fun people. And yeah, I have to say, well, one, you know, and they, especially for, you know, when they built their internet, it was sort of from the ground up. So 
they're the highest best Wi-Fi speeds pretty much anywhere you can get. And I'm sure there's other people who are going to research and say, no, that's wrong, but I'm great. I've, I, I mean, I have run entire classes and this might be too long, but I have run classes over Zoom using my phone as a hotspot and have never had a problem. And the other thing here is the toilet paper. Romanian toilet paper is fantastic. It's like six inches long. It's so thick. You can like hold a sheet of it and it won't bend. It is amazing. And I think maybe after all those years of perhaps having less than high quality toilet paper, they're like, we are going to do this right. There's many other lovely things, <laughs> obviously, about Romania, but I really do like the toilet paper. <laughs> So. Hey, that's a pretty good top two, though. And especially over the last two years <laughs> right. where you've been kind of locked down, like, hey, having great Internet and great toilet paper sounds pretty good to me. Right. You know? I mean, so. like when it comes to you can take a lot of things away. Right. But at the end of the day, there's, you know, I want to stay connected and I appreciate good toilet paper. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. All right, so let's get into the uh, the actual episode now. Now that we've kind of encouraged people to go take a tour or go move to uh, Romania, right? Uh, let's let's hop into game design. First of all, who are you? How did you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Oh well, my name is Kathleen Mercury. I am a teacher, and up until this year, I taught um, in a school district where I taught gifted kids high IQ, and I was always looking for projects for them where um, it was something that they would struggle with not a right answer and where they could only improve by actually improving the project itself and game design fits perfectly with that. So um, I started teaching game design and um, I, I really hate the expression, those who can't do teach, it's a misquote anyway, but still. And so when my students just started designing games, I started designing games too. And Luckily, with having so many students willing to play test games, or, or maybe they just had to sometimes, let's be honest, I was the teacher. Um, and so I designed uh, games that actually have been signed for publication. So um, I have my first game. Grease Lightning just came out from WizKids Games. And then I've got two more in the hopper. I've got one with Colossal called Dragnarok and another one with Greenbrier Games called Valkyrie that I'm very excited about. So um, I don't necessarily design a lot of games, but I've had a pretty good batting average with the ones I have. Very cool. And so, all right, so Grease Lightning is a race game. That's one thing we're going to be talking about yeah. here today. I'm looking forward to chatting about it, almost like a case study and what you learned through that process. But oh, first sure. of all, let's talk about the number of games that have puns as titles. <laughs> it just seems like it's it's a above average. Like I don't know what the industry norm is in different industries as far as like puns. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of movies have pun titles and stuff yeah, like that. Why do so many board games have puns? I don't, I don't know. Well, because you want something catchy, right? I mean, if you just, uh, no one is going to buy a game. Well, no, that's not true. I was going to say no one's going to buy a game called European, European Trading and Settlement Development Game, but heck yeah, people would <laughs> totally buy that game. Um, people buy games called 18XX. Well, that's <laughs> so, true. Um, but but come on, 1846 is very different than 1812. Come on. Um, well, clearly. I don't even know if there's an 1812. <laughs> I do know there's an 1846. I think. Oh, God. I don't know. If not, yell at Gabe, not me. I'm just making stuff Well, there's up. like 47 of those games, so surely. <laughs> no, that's true. I mean, you got, you're, you're playing pretty good odds there. Anyway. Yeah. Well, so that's one thing that's fun is I love puns. I actually used to teach a unit to my eighth grade students on humor, and we did a lot on puns and words play because if you can understand how words can have different meanings then you can you know use that as the basis for jokes i just heard this joke the other day and it makes me laugh why do you never see why do you only see groups of teenage girls in groups of three four i'm sorry 
why do you only see, I'm going to start over so you can capture the jokes on stubble. Why do you only see teenage girls in groups of three, five, and seven? Because they literally can't even. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, that's hilarious. So you, like, understanding the basis of, you know, like, so many jokes comes down to wordplay, you know, presenting people with something, they set their expectations, and then you do that twist, right? And puns are really easy to make. Now, obviously, there are lots of people who hate puns, and that's just, and I'm sorry that you have such sadness in your life, but I really enjoy puns. One of my, fa- and I would help my students design, when they're making games, I would help them come up with game names all the time. And I remember one of my favorite ones was uh, a student making a game about squirrels and like, you know, capturing, you know, nuts and burying them and, you know, all that other stuff. And he really could had such a hard time coming up with a game title because he didn't really care. And so I said, how about who runs the world squirrels? And he was like, fine. You know, I didn't tell him it was based on a Beyonce song, you know, and then when he found out, he was like kind of annoyed. But at that point, I wasn't going to let him change it. Who runs the world squirrels? Who runs the world squirrels? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I love puns. And it's just like, and it's like a sense of humor. I think, especially when it comes to the tone of a game, you know, that can do so much to convey like how like how humorous a game title is can give you an idea with how light the game title is. You know, one of the games um, that I'm working on is just like a fun party game, but it's called Art School Rejects, right? So with a title like that, you know, I mean, obviously party game too, but you want to give it something that like, and that's not even a pun, but just to like convey the tone. And I think that's one thing for puns. Um, there's so many ways out there where it's just like, you know, it's a wink, you know, it's like, I see you out there, you see what I'm doing, I see what you're doing. And people feel like, and humor makes people feel connected. If we're in on the joke together, we feel a connection. If you don't feel like you're part of the joke, then you feel like you're outside of it. So I think puns can do a lot with just a few words. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing, like kind of what you were alluding to, is that mm-hmm. they set the expectations mm-hmm. for the buyer, for the gamer, about maybe what that game is like or what the, the level of complexity is. If you have a game with a very silly or really kind of funny pun, mm-hmm. it's probably not a three-hour Euro experience. Right. you know. And so I think you can set that expectation. And uh, it's also fun as a designer to come up with these things. Like, for instance, I've been working on a uh, zombie-based game where you're basically a mailman in the post-apocalypse mm-hmm. zombie world, and it's called the Dead Letter Office. Right. Because... It just makes sense. It's just perfect. Right. You know, and so you can kind of mesh these things together. Uh, The only downside to puns is when the game gets translated into other languages. And it's fun to see other publishers like in different countries go, okay, I don't know how to say that. Like, that's not a thing here. Mm -hmm. And so for them to come up. And so sometimes the results are kind of funny where it's like, well, that's not that's not what it was originally. And they have to create some different thing just to make it work. Well, one thing is my sister Karen claims credit for naming Grease Lightning. So um, all hail to her for sure. That's one. Um, I mean, as far as Grease Lightning goes. I mean, we had so many different titles that we were thinking about. And it's one of those things that as soon as we landed on Grease Lightning, everybody was just like, yes, you know, and, you know, that it was, I, I hoped, I was kind of wanting the art to have a little bit more of an ancient Greece meets 1950s muscle car sort of look. Um, but that said, like the art came out beautiful. So I'm super happy with it. But that would be, you know, to me, I was like, oh my gosh, can you imagine like, even artistically, like keep playing with this joke, but in the end, like the game um, looks beautiful as it is. So that's okay. But yeah, I think puns are fun. You know, it just helps people, um, yeah, just feel like they're inside of the joke with us. Like come play my silly little game. Yeah, for sure. 
Yeah, it would have been so, I mean, just totally different direction as far as the art goes, but to have like chariots and like old school Greco looking people on mm-hmm. the chariots. And then instead of horses, they've got these like big muscle car engine deals out there. Mustangs, right? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah, exactly. That, that's, and again, that's where you can mesh the title and the art and mm-hmm. the gameplay. And so I'm excited to chat about how to, how to do that with race games. And okay, so let's, sure. let's get into it. Okay. What's a good working definition? When someone says race game, I feel like that can mean multiple things. And so what do you, what do you think that is? What's a good working definition? Well, so when I have kids, had kids design games, the very first type of game that I would have them design is a race game, because I think, and this might go with your definition question is in a race game, the victory, the the player objective and the victory condition are the same, right? It is when the player crosses the line, they win the game. So from a game design standpoint, it's like, those are two really big, hard questions to, like, decide, right? What is the player going to do? How are they going to win? Well, the nice thing about a race game is that's done. So what uh, what you have to do as a designer is focus on how do they race in this game? And so the other thing that I would have students do when they were designing race games is if they couldn't come up with a theme, I would say pick an animal because animals' lives have conflict and conflict makes games. So if a student picked a dolphin, then a dolphin's, what are the actions a dolphin would take? They would swim, they would eat, they would mate, they would collect magic gems off the bottom of the ocean. And so using those maybe types of actions, if they were doing like an action selection type game, then they could put like focus on how the players were actually racing the game. And then when somebody wins and it's, and it's a really flexible sort of definition too, because when it comes to a race game, it doesn't necessarily have to be racing to a particular spot on the board. It could be racing. I mean, Catan, you could argue is a race game and that you're racing to get 10 points first, right? So basically all players are trying to get to a very specific spot together at the same time. And so I think that for me is the sort of like summative, you know, definition of a race game. Yeah, that's excellent. And like you said, there's kind of multiple ways to approach it, whether it's an actual race, there is a finish line, you have your horse or your car and you're trying to cross it mm-hmm. before other people, or you're just raising to a certain number of points or stars or something like that. Yeah. I think that's you know two different ways to, to go about it. And so I love also how it creates like an obvious end game. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like a lot of designers struggle with how to end the game. Right. And there's a lot of balancing, a lot of playtesting that goes into it. Do we, is it a 10 round game? Is it 12? Is it 15? You want to make sure players have enough time. Right. Is it kind of open-ended, whatever, but a race game, it says, Hey, here's the end. You cross the finish line, whatever that finish line looks like. And that's the end of the game. Right. And the way that, you know, it's kind of more obvious. Uh, but why do you think people are drawn to these games? So many race style games come out every single year, whether it's cross the finish line or get to the number of points first or whatever. Why do you think gamers are drawn to these types of games? Well, I think, first of all, fundamentally, most kids games are race games, right? I mean, it, you know, you think of life, you think of sorry, you think of Candyland, even not really Monopoly, but you do roll dice and move along a track. So it has that sort of similarity there, shoots and ladders. Most kid games are race games. And that's one of the reasons why I've had a lot of success using that with students because, you know, when it comes to teaching them about different game mechanics, so they want to do worker placement, set collection, you know, whatever the, you know, whatever the the mechanic might be, 
you know, they, they have a hard time sometimes like really understanding how to use it because they haven't played a lot of games necessarily that use that particular mechanic. In my class, they might play one or two set collection games. They haven't played like 20, right? And so an insect collection is a real easy one to understand. Race games they've played, you know, and not just like board games like the ones I talked about, but they've also played you know, outside red light, green light, they've run races. Like there are so many things that they've done on the tabletop, away from the tabletop that are races. And so because of that, because of that familiarity, it gives them a lot of different places to start from, from a design standpoint. If I were to say, make a worker placement game, where on the board are all the different types of places players can go to either get resources or to manipulate their resources or turn their resources into points. I'm just thinking of Stone Age off the top of my head. Um, They wouldn't have the foggiest clue on how to start. But when you say race game, they absolutely understand what to do. And in fact, a few years ago, I ran a game design workshop at the Tabletop Network Game Designers Conference preceding um, Board Game Geek. And that was, I think, two, yeah, 2020, uh, 2019, because that was the last year I was able to go. And um, I had a room full of so many top designers. And the very and I, what I did was I had three different design challenges, 10 minutes each. And the very first challenge was I gave them a paper bag that had five sets of different types of resources in there. And it was called the games, this games in the bag. And they could use the bag itself and all those pieces to make a race game. And it was amazing. The energy level just popped up as people were working with those design constraints, working with those materials. But because it was a race game, I took away so many of the decisions that they had to kind of decide on what type of game is this, that sort of thing. It was basically what is the coolest way, the most fun way you can get players to go from A to B. And that's why I think for me, whether it's my students, whether it's top, top game designers, I run um, game design jams multiple times. I will mix up what the second game is. I will mix up what the third game is, but I do not deviate from having a race game as the first game because fundamentally it is what we understand the best. And it also then frees us to really play around with the things we really want to do as designers, which is giving players really fun choices to make. Yeah, that's an excellent, excellent point. Because if you go to just random person number five on the street and you say, hey, let's play an engine builder game. Right. Or you say, let's play a worker placement game. Mm-hmm. Most people are like, I, don't, I have no idea what that is. Right. But if you say, hey, let's play a race game. Yeah. I mean, everybody knows what race is. I mean, we've been racing since we've been able to crawl, you know, right. as, as far as that. And so it is a much easier entry point for gamers, for sure. But like you're saying, probably for designers as well. And so let's let's keep expanding on what you're talking about. You mm-hmm. can do the game jams and, and that's a really cool thing. What are some of the other things that make race games just excellent for designers, especially new designers getting into the hobby, getting into game design? What are some other things that just make this a great entry point and why should people listen to this show at least think about designing a race game? Well, I think another thing about a race game is it's usually set in a world that um, comes across as realistic, right? So if I'm making my my game, uh, Grease Lightning, obviously is about ancient Greece. But if you make your race game about, I don't know why Leavenworth, Kansas just came to mind. (laughs) I don't know if you're racing around the prison. (laughs) I don't know what I'm thinking about right now. But when you're thinking about what is this, I mean, it could be about fairies in the forest. It could be about anything, right? So 
when you think about what a race game is, you're going to tie it to something very concrete, real world, even if it's fantasy or sci-fi, it's going to be something where a player is a physical object on the table through some type of race track. And that I think for, from a game design standpoint is easy to concept, you know, to conceptualize because first things first, you could always start it out as an oval cool. And then you can really start to play with it, you know, as far as maybe the racetrack isn't immediately apparent to players. Like if you got like fairies buzzing around the forest, maybe it's where you place the trees will indicate where the fairies can go and where they can't go. So I think as a designer, it's easy to prototype because you're creating something that is some sort of like model of a real world setting. And I think for a designer too, again, getting back to as designers, we want to focus on what is the most innovative, fun decision I can have players make and enjoy making for however long this game lasts. It takes away a lot of the stress about coming up with a more abstract world. Like if you were coming up with some sort of, I'm thinking like Yokohama just pops into mind. It's like a really cool, fun, you know, for me, you know, type of like worker placement game. Well, how you structure and where you put your buildings and what that looks like creates all these sorts of like little ripple effects of decisions. And it can get, you know, if what you're thinking of, you're like, okay, do I make this like a pyramid with triangular numbers? Do I do this? Do I do this? There's so many abstract ideas that come into play when you're thinking about something like that. A race game is I am a roadrunner on a track trying to eat a bird before a big dog eats me, right? <laughs> right. So we can model that really, really easily. And I think that's why I love race games so much, especially for new designers, because again, for all the reasons I have said, I, you know, you're creating a very concrete world that you can manipulate really easily. Oh, everybody goes to this section really quickly that you don't want them to. Awesome. I know right there, I need to add some obstacles or rethink my whole purpose on why I want them to go slower doing this and then why they're going faster to this. Why is it more fun for them to go faster? You know, you can see player behaviors really clearly in a race game and you can make changes really easily to a race game map. You know, I mean, just take matchbox cars, draw out a big map and then lay on the floor and try to come up with a race game using those, you can come up with so many different iterations really, really quickly because you're not needing any type of like magical components or anything like that. Draw a track, make, you know, like I said, you know, bird goes chased by a dog, you know, see what happens. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think another thing that just makes it maybe a little easier for new designers, but also maybe a little more challenging, is the fact that you could basically use any mechanism with that racing theme. I mean, you could go as simple as shoots and ladders and literally I roll a die and I move. Mm -hmm. But I've also seen lots of deck building games and worker placement games and all sorts of other mechanisms that kind of pair with the racing theme. Oh, for and so sure. you can come up with some really cool, you know, matchups as far as like theme and, and mechanism. But at the same time, it's maybe it's pretty big. And so what are some mechanisms you've seen work really, really well? Maybe talk about how Grease Lightning works as far as the core mechanism, but what are some others as well that you've seen that are well, really good for this So theme? I babysat this weekend. So like I'm a teacher in Bucharest, Romania, and I, there's a, uh, some, a couple that I know and they're very sweet, wonderful people. And I babysat their kids this weekend so that they could go away to Bologna, Italy. Cause that's the fun thing about teaching internationally in Europe. Like, 
they're going to Bologna for the weekend. Spoiler alert, I'm going next weekend for the weekend because I can, you know, it's just, it's a delightful little perk. But anyway, um, so I had their kids, um, their oldest is in fifth, their youngest is in first, and the first grader had a little friend over too. And I brought a whole bunch of games. And let me tell you, Magical Athlete was a hit magical athlete is a goofy goofy race game you roll 1d6 to move on the board you know but all the players have these goofy derpy little like take that type of abilities or other types of abilities they had so much fun with it you know and so um when it comes to like what I'm looking for in a race game, you know, I mean, A, know your audience. Little kids are way more in favor of take that stab each other in the back activities. Gamers, adult gamers tend to get a little bit, you know, <laughs> a little bit snotty about that as a design decision, especially when it's coupled with races because so many kid games have that. Like in Sorry, kids think it's hilarious to throw a sorry card at somebody and make them go back to start adults. If we put that in modern board games, ho, ho, people would get very, very upset. Kids don't have a problem with that. They're very, they're way more okay with stabby, stabby behaviors than adults are. So I think, um, you know, when it comes to like race games that I've played lately, the fact that it's magical athlete, which if you're not familiar with, you should check it out. It's so bad. It's good. They do a live version of it at dice tower um at one point i know like the local game store around me back in st louis missouri they were selling it for like three or four dollars and i bought mine for 50 online off bgg because i played it and i was like i have to have this i brought it with <laughs> me to romania and i had culled my collection down from well over a thousand to you know like 150 200 magical athlete came with me so there's that um, when it comes to like my game, Grease Lightning, what I wanted to do, and I play tested this game over years with my students, but it was taking all of those elements of a race game and trying to give players choices, because that's one big thing for my students is understanding that games aren't just like terrible situations that happen to people. You lose all your money. You go back to start. You lose four turns. Players don't like that. Let's give them choices that they can make that are fun for them, right? So for, um, you know, Grease Lightning, it's not just rolling dice. You can choose if you want to try to roll that extra third dice. But if you don't make the number you need to roll, then you're going to lose two dice, right? So players are making that sort of decision. Um, the game also has different tracks that you can put down. There's these uh, wedge-shaped pieces with different tracks. And so you can put down, you know, different um, on the board itself, you can put down something that's helpful in front of you. You can put some, down something that's bad for somebody else in front of them. You know, and again, giving players choices. There's um, God ability cards. They might be good for you. They might be bad for others. Good for everybody. Bad for everybody. You know, but again, like when they would play those different types of cards, because, you know, one of the problems when you use dice in a race game, even when mine has uh, more of a press your luck mechanism, if you roll badly, right, then you don't get to move too much. But um, the way that we put in, especially with player abilities and everything is you can collect different cards that can ameliorate sort of like the more damaging effects of a bad role, you know, if, and depending on how, like how strategically you play that. And I think, especially when it comes to race games, you're saying like play strategically, there's kind of a little disconnect, I think for people sometimes, but that's what we try to do. And I feel like we're really successful in that as far as, 
Um, you can play it like a kid where you just slap stuff down and go, 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 and then you win or you lose. But then there's also like some fun little things you can play around with in the game as far as like trying to like balance out if you get a bad roll so that you can still go ahead and win the race. Um, one of my students came up with the catch-up mechanism that um, has worked out really, really well. And basically if you're in last place, you get to double the effects of your very first navigation die. And that was huge. He solved a problem that I'd been kicking around for like a year or so. Like, what do I do when a player falls so far behind that they cannot catch up and they're mathematically out of the game? And he came up, he was walking to his English class and he just looked at me and he said, well, what if you just did blah, blah, blah. And I looked at him and I just thought, I, I mean, I'd play tested the game so many times at this point. I'm like, that's it. I know that's the answer. And it was, you know, so his name is in the credits of the rule book because he <laughs> saved me from a problem I was having for so long, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing when it comes to race games, what is it that you're wanting to capture in terms of the, for the player, what is the experience you're wanting players to have? Um, originally it was a space game for us. We wanted it like a Mario Kart and space kind of feel. That was sort of what we we're going for, but why are they racing? You know, what are they racing to and what types of fun decisions? Because if players don't feel like they have fun decisions in the game, it's just sort of deterministic. They wait till it's over and it's done. Yeah. Okay. So you got some really cool points in there. I want to unpack a few different ones. Yeah. The first one is knowing your audience, right? Understanding, is this for kids? Because if it is, you can go a different direction than if it's for adults, you know, who are more like the gamer, heavier gamers, like that's going to be a different design path that you take. And so knowing that early on makes a ton of sense, but I also love how in your game and a lot of these really good racing games, Formula D comes to mind as mm -hmm. one of my favorite racing games it has this like push your luck element yeah. where you've got these options and you're like okay i could go for broke i could put the pedal to the metal throw the nos in there and we might go mm -hmm. way too far and explode but i might also get into first place and win the whole race because of this moment and so you get that tension which is exactly like a race like you want to feel like you're racing you know as as much as you can in a, in a board game because i feel like there's a lot of games that have come out that have been either racing themes or just based on some theme or some licensed ip mm -hmm. That's supposed to be fast, but it doesn't feel that way. I'm reminded of the Sonic the Hedgehog game that came out a while back. Mm -hmm. And it's like one of the slowest playing games in history. And it's like, could you be any more off right. in the way the mechanism lines up with the theme? I mean, this video game was stupid fast. That's the whole point. Right. But then the board game is like this methodical thinky like okay when does the card come down now i'm gonna play another card like this is opposite of sonic as possible so right. let me get your thoughts on how to make a race game feel more like a race well i think one of the most important things and is um players have to feel like they're jockeying for position um, I think that's key to players feeling like this is I'm racing against something because if it's in a race game, if you have players, you know, doing four player solitaire where they're basically trying to beat the board, um, trying to beat the board is a fine type of game, not in a race game, unless for some way, because of course, with every type of like, when you make like an absolute claim in game design, somebody's going to come up with something that absolutely utterly proves me wrong. But I do like that. Um, no, but you want to have people where they feel like they can make a meaningful decision for themselves, you know, and it's again, like kind of like the three things in games. Do you want to do something that helps yourself? hurt someone else or helps you and hurt someone else. Right. And the, the, the goal is always that last three. So when you're wanting to have players racing in a game, what do they do where they can interact meaningfully that their decision has an impact on other people's 
um, play. And one of the most minimal ones I think you should have in the game is, you know, you should never have players go back to start. You should never have players lose a turn. No one has fun with that ever. Ever. Little kids are okay with that, but if you're wanting to design games for an older audience, don't do that. So if players can't do those two core, you know, gold standard types of mess with other players types of things, what are the types of actions that make sense in the thematic world that you're building? And I think that's an important thing too, is really what is this theme world about? If you're doing fairies in the forest, as I keep mentioning that, what is it about fairies that makes racing really fun and what are the challenges that fairies face that are something that you know that they can do that they can use to get in front in the way of other people um so i think how can you have players interact meaningfully in this world that you're building where they feel like their decisions have the possibility to help them or hurt someone else help themselves hurt someone else or importantly fourth blow up and wreck their race. You know, you want people to feel like they could push it, but then maybe they don't make that leap over the ramp. Maybe they fall into the creek, right? But they they had that chance and they decided it was worth it to take it. And I think tension in a race game is one of the most important things as a designer to build and capture. Yeah, I completely agree on that. I want to come back to tension in a moment, but first I want to talk about something you said a, a minute ago with the why. Why are these people, why are these animals, these things racing? Sometimes it's obvious if you have an, a game based on NASCAR, okay, they're racing to win money, uh, to win fame, you know, that, that kind of makes sense. But if you have a little bit more kind of out there theme, like you're talking about fairies in the wilderness or in mm -hmm. the woods, it's like, okay, why are these fairies racing? So what's your advice on, especially if you have kind of a, a non typical, I guess, theme or kind of something a little bit out of the ordinary as far as racing goes, what would be your advice to a designer on coming up with or figuring out the why? Like, why are these things racing? I think there's a lot of games that can benefit, that can be so adaptable to so many different other types of themes, you know, where you could put, you know, you know, when you come across and play some sort of like Euro-y type of game, you're like, okay, the theme for this game is blah, 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 but really it could be about anything, you know? Um, I think especially you have to really think about if you're making a race game. I mean, from, from my perspective, if you're wanting, you know, you're wanting to capture an authentic experience or players to feel as much as they can that they're doing this, do they have to feel like they're doing it? No. Are there some people who are incapable of feeling that? Absolutely. But the point is, is if you are giving people a, a racing game should have authentic tension on the part, as I was just saying about players, right? I want to beat you. I want to race my little car ahead of yours, right? And so when I'm doing that, I want to make those choices that allow me to feel like I'm actually really doing that. So you just, I mean, I think I'm kind of going around the same thing. You have to really make sure that the world that you're creating is presenting a conflict that makes sense on why I'm trying to do that. Because otherwise, if players aren't connected to it, they don't care. I don't watch NASCAR because I don't care. If I watched a NASCAR race, for hours and hours, I would do it if somebody really wanted me to. And maybe I'd be like kind of excited, like, woo, the blue car, <laughs> you know, it's not a world I really care about. So I don't really care who wins. You know, you have to have it where um, you really have to think about what it is for players and how can you capture something about that. So if fairies racing around 
doesn't capture your interest at all, well, then it probably won't capture a lot of other gamers' interest either, right? So if you're going to have players race, what is it about the race that will capture that? Grease Lightning's original theme was a space game because in outer space, you know, players can do anything. They can go in portals. They can, you know, hit space mines. There's all kinds of things that can happen in space because in space and science fiction, you can create all kinds of crazy stuff, right? We switched it to Greece. The Hydra made a lot more sense and everything thematically kind of came in a lot better, I think, with it, with the ancient Greece theme. So I was happy about that change. So you just have to think about what is the world that you're doing and why should players care? Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea of also just coming up with a narrative, even if it's very, very simple, for mm -hmm. why the race matters, right? So let's go back to our fairy race game example. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is a, an evil band of goblins, and they're on their way to get the magical fairy gemstone from the enchanted forest. And if they get it, they're going to take over the forest and everything's going to be bad. And so mm -hmm. you're racing to get there first. And whoever gets there first not only saves the day, but also becomes the fairy queen to rule for the next 10 years. You know, something like that, right? So right. now you have like a story. You have a reason why we're doing this. And I, mm -hmm. I want to be the fairy queen. I don't want you. You're going to make terrible decisions as fairy queen. I should be fairy queen. And the goblins is kind of like a second, primary, secondary, whichever whichever <laughs> way your ego goes, I guess. Do you want to save the day or do you really just want to be fairy queen? Either way. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. But we've created a narrative. And I think right. that's another cool way you can kind of come up with ideas, come up with conflict, like you were saying. Uh, any other ways as far as like how to add tension to the game? I love that your game has this kind of dice roll mechanism. Do I roll the extra die? I don't know. But you're adding mm -hmm. tension, a little push your luck. Any other thoughts on ways to add tension? Um, well, I mean, especially I think with a race game, you you know, like what you're saying with the Sonic the Hedgehog one, that it, it should play fast, you know? Um, I mean, people like, especially when it comes to tension, if you're building tension in like a movie, right. Um, there comes with, I think like Hitchcock, right. Like tension builds, tension builds, tension builds. And you have to be in the way reason why Hitchcock is so masterful. He was the king of tension, right. Was knowing what his definition of, you know, like tension, right. Is there's two people sitting at a table and when there's a bomb underneath the, the table, in a, in a suitcase. If the bomb goes off, that's surprise. But if it doesn't, like that's tension, right? And so you have to think about, you know, how prolonged, if you can actually create a really meaningful tense race, how long do you expect players to hold on to that feeling of tension before it just becomes noise. It just becomes exhausting. They're just like, ugh, are we done already? You know, um, the worst thing you can happen is players are excited and tense and then they just start to get bored. They become numb to it. So thinking about if you're making a race game, do you want to have, you know, shorter laps? Like for example, the game um, Detroit Cleveland Grand Prix, which I love, um, and I use that with students, right? And it's what was then later um, turned into downforce, which is a way better implementation of of, uh, of Detroit Cleveland Grand Prix. In Detroit Cleveland Grand Prix, there are three races. And it's a pretty big racetrack, right? So you play the first race, you play the second race, and you could be so far out of the money after the first race or first and second races that the third is just procedural for you if you are not winning at all, right? But with downforce, they took out the multiple lap multiple races and it's just one right and not only so is it just one race but also they put in where you bet 
on cars in terms of like how well that you think they're going to do at the end. So they did it. It's a really smart way to make people care, not just about their car, but about others. And that they might actually try to make other cars win if they think economically that's a better decision for them. So they made people care not just about their own car, but also about what other cars are doing and to maybe shift the car that they actually wanted to win. That's really, really smart. And I think that's why, I mean, you know, I think that's such a good example of a really, really fun race game. You know, that's a game where I can teach downforce of people, they play it, they're like, I want to play that again. It's like, you sure do, because it's really, really fun. Yeah, for sure. Downforce is such an excellent implementation of racing as a theme, but then also with the mechanisms play out. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent game. Some of the other ways I've seen games add or race games add tension is actually in the actual movement of your pieces. And so for instance, I've I've played some games where you're not allowed to backtrack. So if you, you know, you've got your big board, it's got spaces and you move your car, you move your, your token on the, on the board, you're not allowed to go, Oh shoot, I didn't mean to go that I'm going to back up and and I'm going to do those spaces again. No, no, no. Once you've gone forward, that's it. Like you can't go back. And so you got to really think through and maybe count a little bit in your head, but then you might be off. You might be wrong. You might have not seen all the things on the board, right? But then, you know, you can't go backwards in a race. Like that doesn't make sense. But then like uh, Gaslands, which is an excellent racing game that's built on war game mechanisms where you have these templates and you're moving like certain number of inches basically. And as soon as you pick up a template to move your car, that's it. You can't pick it up, put it down in front of your car and go, oh shoot, I miscalculated. I misjudged how far that was. My depth perception was a little bit off. Doesn't matter. You're stuck with it. And so that was a way for the, the games to not only speed up gameplay so you don't have people like min-maxing every single decision and putting every single template out there and going, okay, here's the perfect one. It's like, no, this is a race. It's supposed to feel fast. You're supposed to probably make mistakes because you misjudged how far away the wall was. And so I, I love how designers come up with different mechanism, mechanismal, I don't think that's a word, but anyway, ideas based on mechanisms to make the game feel more like a race as well. And so those are some really cool things that I've seen, but let's, let's switch gears a little mm-hmm. bit. Let's talk about the difference in a race game that the first first person across the finish line wins outright. The game's over. They're the winner. Maybe you have a second, third place, something like that. Um, versus the first player crosses the finish line and maybe that triggers the end game. But now mm-hmm. we're going to count up points and there's other ways to win and maybe there's secret objectives that players were doing. So it's a race to the finish, but then you're not necessarily the winner. Like maybe you get a bonus, you get a 10 point bonus for being the first one and five point bonus for being second, something like that. But then we're going to count up victory points and see who the actual winner is. Let's talk mm-hmm. about the differences there and, and why you might want to use one versus the other based on the theme, anything like like that. Right. Well, I think if you if you switch gears and, and that's one thing that I like about race games, like when I'd have my students do it, because that would sort of organically happen. They say, Miss Mercury, like, I know you said, like in a race game, the winner is the first person to cross the finish line. But what if just like you said, you know, they cross the finish line, but then the winner is whoever has the most like, you know, magic gen points that their dolphin collected. Down, and I would always be like, yes. And in fact, by the end so few kids games would really resemble a race game because it gave them sort of a very comfortable design structure for them to work within. So then they could sort of like kind of push out the boundaries a little bit when they found that just like a classic race structure didn't necessarily fit for them. So what I would say is if you want to have a race game that when somebody crosses a line it triggers the end and then whoever has the most whatever wins you know it's it's not necessarily going to be as much of a race i mean obviously that's one 
of the different factors that players will be, you know, sort of judging to see if they have enough of in terms of, you know, for whatever the conditions are for winning. But the more you give players something other to th- other to think about than just basically kind of like a go, 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 go kind of thing, then you are shifting away from a race game. So you have to um, think about allotting more time for those decisions and those decisions better be really, really good in order to like, you've, you've sucked out a lot of tension by, by adding more time over here in terms of players decision-making. Okay. Don't expect them to do both. So there was one race game that I was play testing for gray Fox games when I was living in St. Louis. And um, it there was some sort of like car race game. And one of the things are like, Oh, there's a real time element to it. And I was like, okay, I like real time. And basically you flipped over cards and then whoever like grabbed a card first, like then they got to use that card in the race. And I was like, that's not real time. But also what it was to me from a design standpoint was the cards all had a lot of text on them. And rather than having players, you know, like rather than having the game stop, for players to like read all these cards and pass them around, the designers are like, whoever grabs one first gets it. And I understand that, but I think the designers should have said, what's most important here? If it's about giving players a lot of text to read, to figure out what what a card actually does, is it fair to the players to put this sort of like artificial time constraint on them? And if this was your game and, um, I mean, there are lots of really cool, fun things about it. So I please don't think that uh, I'm <laughs> talking on your game um, by any means, because uh, we've all been there. It was a play test. Um, so that's one thing I would think about is when you have players doing other things, it's becoming less of a race. So if you're going to take away that enjoyable sort of, you know, sh- you know, I shove you, you shove me kind of tension that comes in a race game, what are you giving players that is just as good in terms of their experience? Right. It seems like a game like that, a, a slapper style game, right? The first person to slap the table, to slap the card gets it. You want no text. You want one giant number right. or a pattern or a color that is instantly recognizable. And then the players just come in and they're like, oh, I need that. But then they want to, you want them to make a fast enough decision where they might be wrong and it might be the right. opposite of what they needed, but they right. slapped in too fast. Jungle right. speed. I'm yes. reminded of, right? Yes. And so, yeah, definitely something you got to think about is that yeah. like, you don't want to have a, a three sentence ability where everybody's like staring at the table and they're trying to like parse out, do I need that? I don't know. And then you, right. you're basically rewarding whoever can read faster or whoever didn't, uh, whoever didn't bring their glasses. Sorry, you're not going to win this game. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's something to definitely uh, think about. And then also it seems like you're, you're, you're kind of going down, down the path of mitigating min maxing, right? right? Where, cause I've seen so many games, a lot of prototypes, especially where it is kind of a race game where you're racing to 10 points, you're racing to five stars, whatever it is. But the players get to choose kind of when they cross that finish line, when they cross mm-hmm. that threshold. And so you end up with this elongated game where at the end it lasts like 20 extra minutes because everybody's jockeying for like the extra points. And so they're, right. they're playing their cards. They're trying to like really maximize how many victory points they're going to get at the right. end. And so there's like a almost a downside of crossing the finish line. And, and then the game just kind of stretches out longer than it's supposed to last. Right. And so what would be your advice as far as like creating tension to where players have to finish or, or coming up with like a, a secondary mechanism that forces the end game? Take that out. Take that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, like if you want a fun, fast, if you want a fun, fast race game, 
think about when you're watching, you know, a race on TV, right? You know, whether it's NASCAR or like the Olympics track and field or some sort of race, right? When you're watching this, you want the tension to be at its peak point right up at the end, right? Who's going to get it? And boom, you know, oh, it's a photo finish for whatever horse and, you know, whatever that sort of thing. That's where you want your tension to be. And if you are seeing players suck out every bit of that tension because of that min-maxing thing, then think about what it is you're actually asking players to do. Because there's such a strong concept in our minds of what a race is that, you are building in cognitive dissonance if you are asking players to behave opposite of what their expectations should be. There's no type of game that probably has clearer expectations for players than if you say this is a race game. You know, if I say it's a set collection game, there's all kinds of things I could be collecting sets on. People have the general idea, but you know, there's that. If you say it's a race, players are mentally like tying on their shoes. They're mentally getting ready to go so that if you have it where players are doing all of this other like point business to get to the end, I'm not saying you can't have that work. You know, it could be really fun, but make that the tension point and not necessarily the race itself, you know, make it like where it's like a random, like kind of end to the game or whatever it is that you want to do so that as players are pushing to try to get as many points, they can't exactly know when exactly that would happen. Because if I can see on the board where everybody else is, and I know I'm the furthest out in front and everyone else is behind me, I will feel more comfortable. Okay. I'm going to go around and collect more, you know, magic gems as a dolphin. Cause I know I've got this lead time in front of other people. Yeah, that doesn't quite fit to me, you know? So um, it's okay to take stuff out for that pure, pure sort of experience if that's what you're wanting to make. Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about catch-up mechanisms. Mm. I feel like they're super vital to have in these games because the last thing you want is a player to feel so far behind. This yeah. like, well, why am I still playing? You guys finish I, the game. I'm going to go get a sandwich. Who cares? And so you mentioned that that was a big moment in your own games design. Oh, yeah. Let's talk about catch-up mechanisms, why you need, them, need to have them in the, this case, and then what are some options that uh, you can use? Well, and I think with catch-up mechanisms, the worst type, obviously, is where, you know, a bad player is being carried along by the game itself. And, and it almost becomes, you know, something that is players have no autonomy over. Like, it's just sort of happening to them. I, you know, um, you know, oh, I rolled a one, so the game automatically adds six to my roll kind of thing. You're like, well, you know, you didn't roll as extra six. You just rolled a one, you know. So... Um, the nice thing about the way that it worked out for mine is it really solved that problem of, um, players falling so far behind that they couldn't stay in the game. And it's a very quick, it's a very easy kind of solution to that problem. Um, when it, you know, and that's one thing you have to decide upon as a designer, my original version of Grease Lightning, um, and I should also make sure to mention Mark Selmeyer, my co-designer um, on it. It started out as his game, and um, then I stepped in and we worked on the rest of it together. But um, with Grease Lightning, when it started out um, as a space theme game, it had a black hole um, towards the center. And if your player's ships got pulled into the black hole, 
you were out of the game. And to me, I mean, that makes sense. You take so much damage, you know, from various things. You can blow up in space. And we are soft trash bags full of vegetable soup. You know, like I don't survive in space very well. Like it made sense to do that. Uh, but eventually, but it was one of those things that um, was eventually changed because player elimination is kind of box office poison, you know, in the gaming world right now, which is kind of a bummer because there are times where I think, especially in a race game, I would rather be actually eliminated from the game than artificially carried along. So where I'm not, you know, so that's what I think you want to make sure when it comes to some sort of catch up mechanism, it's something that doesn't change or win the game for people, but it can help people to just stay in the race. Like, because if you roll, you know, three dice and you roll a one and one and one, you know, you roll three, somebody rolls three sixes. Oh, look, they've got 18. They're automatically better at the game, most likely because they just rolled higher. Right. And that's when, that's one of the risks you take when it comes to dice. So, um, you know, wanting something to at least kind of like help people, if people make really bad decisions and they want to, try to roll to get extra dice in my, the extra die in my game, but they don't and they bust. And then the next one they bust and the next one they bust. I mean, there's natural consequences. You can't, you know, like, you know, necessarily like fix that for people who just, you know, are going to do that. That's fine. But I think especially when it comes to catch up mechanisms, um, you, you have to be sort of careful because if it feels too artificial, then what's the point? And this is totally unrelated, but I was babysitting this weekend for these kids and they love all these like YouTube influencers. And, um, and there was this one influencer who built this sort of like escape room for his friends to go through or for some people to go through. And if they made it through, they would get a hundred thousand dollars. Well, at one point in the game, they were having trouble with one of the obstacles in the room. And so they told them basically how to get past it. And then they ended up winning, but I was like, who cares? Like with that, they completely deflated all the tension in the game because they they were just needing them to keep moving for the purpose of creating YouTube concert, which is fine. The kids I was watching had no problems with this until I started fussing about it, you know? Um, but yeah, that's the thing with catch up mechanism in the race. Like it's, I think as a parent, sometimes you have to let your children cry, Right. And that's just what has to happen. I think sometimes in game design, if you're making a race game, people are going to lose and people may lose badly. And that's the, that's kind of the problem in a race game is you want players to have a great experience, but you can't always promise that. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it's important to be careful not to create the blue shell catch up mm -hmm. mechanism yes. where you're punishing people for doing well yes. and all of a sudden they're winning and they're playing the game well and they're skillful at it and, and maybe the dexterity, something, whatever they're winning because of them and their choices and the way things have come out. And then all of a sudden for no real reason, other than the fact that they're winning now they're not, and right. they've been taken out of contention. That's not fun. And so I think being careful uh, with that, unless you're designing a kid game, like, sorry, then that case. It, you know, and, but, but. and the longer you have players spend a game, the longer they should feel like their decisions matter, that they could actually build up a skill, like they could get better at a game, you know? And so I think that's something that you have to like, think about too, when it comes to your game is if it's really short, you know, players are a lot more okay with, you know, like random kind of crazy stuff happens. But if your race game is an hour and a half long, they want to make a lot of decisions to like really like, you know, win that race. So you really have to balance again, like what your, you know, desired objective for players is what your outcome for players is 
make the game match that. And that's hard, you know, especially if you come up with something that's really, really cool that you want to use, you know, and you're like, oh, I've got this cool thing and I want to put it in the game. Just put it in a different game. You know, if it's really cool, it'll work somewhere else. Right. All right. Let's switch gears and mm-hmm. talk about playtesting. What are you looking for when you're watching playtesting sessions, when you're playtesting the game yourself? What are the things you're making notes of? What are the things mm-hmm. that you're tweaking and maybe changing from iteration to iteration? Tell me about that. So um, I will say that for playtesting um, on my website, KathleenMercury.com, which is where I put all of my game design teaching resources for free and it's still there and it's still live, um, is feedback for me is I think I'm a bad game designer. I'm not somebody who like cracks out, you know, a game that's 90% complete and just needs a little bit of play testing to like tweak out the rough edges who comes, I don't come up with six games per season or anything like that. But what I am good at is I'm good at play testing. I'm good at listening. I'm good at seeing player responses. I mean, there's, you know, think about, you know, communication and behavior is communication. So nonverbal communication is just as important as what players actually say. What point do they pull out their phones and start looking at them? You know, that's not good, you know? Um, And so the most helpful thing when it comes to play testing, and this is a, a format that I use no matter what I have students make or no matter what game I have, and there's just four questions and it's one, uh, it's the wink form. And this is on my website. Wink, uh, so the W is what works in the game. So tell me everything that you think works. Um, Then there's the I for what needs to be improved, like what's broken, what could be made better in the game. Then there's N for what new ideas you have. And especially for my students, this is in a lot of ways the most important one because they have so many ideas about games that they want to tell you. And I know there's lots of designers out there who don't want ideas from other people. They only want, they want to kind of be in their own world or they don't want to like listen to somebody's idea, have it actually work and then feel like it's not their game. Um, I'm not like that. If people give me a really cool idea, I'm going to try it incorporated and try to remember to put them in the credits, you know? Um, so the, so then what new ideas? And I think especially when you're playtesting that with other people, if you want them to feel invested in the process is, you know, if you're asking the first two questions, it's almost like, you know, confirm to me what I suspect, right? But new ideas is where you give players, um, playtesters the opportunity to tell you really what they want the game experience to be. And that leads to that final question is what questions do you have? And you can make it that open-ended and that's kind of a tough one. Um, and, and so it could be like, if it's a pirate game, like, did you feel like a pirate? What is missing from this? What would make you more like a pirate? So it's W-I-N-Q, what works, what needs improvement, what new ideas, what questions. And that is the only feedback form that I've ever used ever since. Um, I used to have kids do rating scales, um, different numbers, different categories, various rubrics. And like, what do the numbers mean? Especially if I'm play testing a game and you're play testing a game, what does my eight mean compared to your seven? You know, what does my eight mean compared to your four? You know, it doesn't mean anything. And so I'd have kids rate each other's games using that. And then there'd be like space along the side and the bottom for comments. And that's what they would ignore the rubric. They would only focus on those comments. And so that's when I shifted to a comments only thing. So for me, particularly, it's been hard sometimes to recognize that something that I love in a game just isn't working and needs to come out. But man, once you do that a few times, 
<laughs> you become kind of immune to it. You know, you're like, all right, this doesn't work here. Cool. Out it goes, you know, because I got to make this game what it needs to be. So I think for me, um, I am very, very feedback oriented when it comes to games. I want to know what they think and, and I want, and I am absolutely delighted and entertained to, to hear other people's ideas. I would rather hear 99 ideas that I already know, or, you know, don't want to try, can't use whatever for that one idea where it's a kid walking into his English class and he turns to me and say, well, you know what you could do? And I was like, oh my gosh, you know? And, and so you could say, well, Kathleen, you didn't design the game. The kid designed the game. It's like, well, I had the sense as the designer to know that this would actually work, you know? So I think when it comes to playtesting, um, it's not about you. It's about the game, you know? And, and I think that's one thing too, especially like as a woman, when I'm playtesting my game, um, I always have to kind of give people permission to tell me the honest truth, because I think sometimes as a woman, you know, they're like, and I say, I know this game has problems. Um, I can't fix them until you tell me what they are. You will not hurt my feelings. I want to fix this game. I want to make this game better. And in doing that sort of like little disclosure, I get all kinds of feedback from people because I, and this, and I don't think that even being a woman can do it. I think that would work for anybody, you know, but just because you, and, and don't argue, keep your mouth shut, listen, write down everything, even if you've already heard it, because the second people feel like you're not listening, you're resistant to their ideas, they will stop talking. It's no longer worthwhile to them. And you lose the potential to hear so much good information. Yeah, I love that. And I love the system, the wink system mm -hmm. you've come up with. I think that's really smart, really good way to do it. Another thing I've seen designers do, it's kind of based on your last point there, is to get the ultimate just honest feedback is they'll tell playtesters, hey, a friend of mine or hey, someone I know is designing this game and they've asked me to play test it. And so we're going to play test it. I want you to give me some feedback. And then they feel removed. Like, so the mm -hmm. designer is technically, quote unquote, not sitting at the table and right. they'll give you super honest feedback because they don't, they don't think they're hurting your feelings. And so I've seen some designers do that as well. And that, that works for them. And, uh, and, and yeah. So absolutely. I think my friend... John Brieger, and he has an amazing article on his website about observational research and playtesting, uh, johnbrieger.com. I was just talking to him today, which was a treat. And um, he started off doing observational research. He worked in the corporate world for like Apple designing their stores and doing all kinds of other stuff. And he has observational research, like down to like a science almost when it comes to playtesting and stuff and looking at like, you know, player ability, you know, player behavior, like write down comments that players say as far as that goes when it comes to gaming. And and it's really something important to like, especially when it comes to playtesting is really separating yourself from this is my work. This is my baby to what is the experience players are actually having. But um, in his, for like, so he's got a really great article on on that that people should look at. But one of my things, we were playtesting games one weekend, and he got up to go to the bathroom. And when he, when he went out to the bathroom, he said, listen, I need to go to the bathroom, play the game. And if there's a rule or something you don't understand, just make up something. And then when I get back, tell me what you did. So I watched this happen a few times with him in these bathroom trips. And um, so I asked him, I said, I think that's a strategy. I think you're doing this on purpose so that if there's a part of a game where you're not sure what should happen, 
you're removing yourself for players to sort of figure out organically, like what should happen here. And then you find that out when you get back from the bathroom. I think you're doing that on purpose. And he started laughing. He's like, no, I drink a lot of water and that's really going to the bathroom. But he's like, but that is a pretty good idea. <laughs> so um, I think that's something too, you know, when it comes to play testing and like, and having players feel comfortable to say what they think should happen in a game. So you can do the, maybe it's a trick. Maybe it's not John Brieger, go to the bathroom trick. So that's another thing yeah. you could do. <laughs> right. And that is, that is super smart. And no wonder John Brieger is one of the smartest guys in the industry. Well, settle down there. He's all right. <laughs> I mean, he's one of the best developers I've ever no. talked to. He came on the show a while back and uh, yeah, just super smart guy. And he's done a lot of really good work. Yeah, no, he, really, I, really good games. Yeah. He's one of my favorite people in, in the gaming world. He's pretty great. So if you haven't, yeah. uh, if you're a designer, johnbrieger.com, he's got some articles on there um, that he's written. And the one on observational research is I think required reading. For sure. Well, Kathleen, this has been excellent. Let's get some closing thoughts. What would you tell somebody just to kind of close things out? Maybe they're designing a race game. Maybe they're listening to this podcast and going, oh, I could, I could design one of those. That sounds like fun. Yeah. What would you tell them? You can do it. Do it. I mean, and, and, and like anything else, like if you do what everyone has always said to do, you will be very good. You will not be great. And great comes from when you break rules, change rules, make them your own rules. And so if you really want to do this, I think a, I think a race game is such a great way to start with because you can just really get in the sandbox and start playing around, get weird, pull out weird components, think about all kinds of different sort of story worlds that you can put it into you know, and, and just, you know, just play around with it, just have fun with it. You know, and the other thing is, you know, quit making pretty prototypes. Don't spend so much time making really gorgeous art. I do all of my game design art on Google drawings and Google docs, and it does not look cute, you know, but I've sold three games um, on the basis of that. And, and even like this fourth one, which I just, I got a pass on, but the um, publisher, um, they're shifting the, the, the line that this was designed for. They're stopping the line. So, you know, there you go. But um, like, it's literally Sharpie on cards and um, for this like tile placement area control game. And he's like, I love this, you know, <laughs> because it's like, I can change this in 12 minutes, <laughs> you know, because I have, you know, and so just make stuff ugly and cheap and fast and get it on the table and try to design as quickly as possible. Don't hem and haw over every decision, get it on the table, play test it quickly, you know, iterate, 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 iterate. You will make much better games if you design a lot of projects in a short amount of time each, as opposed to one project over a long period of time promise. Right. It's the idea that quantity turns into quality. Yeah. The more you keep throwing, keep throwing the ball, you know, and the, the better you'll get at throwing it, yeah. and, and it, no matter what you're doing. Right. And something you said a moment ago about, you know, just trying to do something different, do something new. I read a quote a while back and it said to get results you've never gotten, you're going to have to do things you've never done. Yeah. You know, I feel like a lot of people, they keep banging their head against the wall and wondering why it doesn't work. It's like, you got, you got, you got to do something different. It's not going to work. Right. And so you know, putting yourself out yeah. there and, and trying something new. I remember yeah. one time I play tested a game and it was Concordia, but like with a different theme and they added on like other types of scoring tracks to just like bog the game down. And it's like, and the, 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 the frustration point was, it's like, why is, why shouldn't I just play Concordia? Right. 
Concordia is done and it's designed well and it's got you added all these other things that I don't think add anything to that. You didn't add anything to that. You took Concordia as a game and just said it's your own by slapping a couple other things on there. Like, I don't know, man. So yeah, just take risks, you know? I mean, and you will only discover who you are as a designer um, just by doing things and by practicing. I know that for myself, I really get most excited when I can have players interacting with the game board all of my games have the board is very much like what they are working with struggling with against right um, moving pieces the shape of the board whatever it is that's something that because i'm a really visual person and that's what works for me and i don't think i would have been able to you know say that about myself when i was designing my very first game so just make a mess and see what happens yeah for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, Kathleen, where can people find you? What games you got coming out you want to tell people about? What you got? Well, I am located in Bucharest, Romania, Sector 1. Come on down. I didn't, I didn't mean literally. More more online. <laughs> I yeah. know, I know, I know. <laughs> um, I, I, You know, like two year, you know, a year and a half ago, if I had known I would be sitting here, I don't know that I'd believe you, but here we are. Life's magic. Um, so you can find me at KathleenMercury.com. Uh, where I, as I said, all my game design resources are there for free. Please encourage other people who want to teach game design to do this, to share them um, because they're free. I made all this stuff and I just didn't want it to sit in a folder somewhere. Um, you can also, I'm on Instagram and at mercury.com at mercury with seven M's. Um, but that's more just like vanity stuff. I'm on um, very rarely on Twitter at uh at mercury seven m's and then um funk donut on board game geek and i really like to help people you know that's kind of my thing so if you're just if you're wanting to come up with a game idea or if you're teaching game design or whatever just you know reach out i zoom with people all the time to try to help them put stuff together so just let me know how i can help because i want kids to design games i want kids to play better games i want adults to play better games and anything i can do to make that work i would like to do so thank awesome. you. Well, Kathleen. Awesome. Well, Kathleen, really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you joining me here on the show. Good luck with more games getting out into the world and everything else you got going on right now. Thank you so much. I am excited and it is a great time to be a designer. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?